Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Ben Bell, which is how you're talking. And uh, together we're going to be discussing the funny side of psychology, which is how I'm talking. Yep, this week, episode 45. We've got that brim full of Asher. We've put it down on the episode. We've got a 70,000-piece orchestra set. We've got a solid-state radio. It's a phallic symbol for a pillow. <laughs> it's not a phallic symbol. Come on. <laughs> yonic. That's the word you were looking Sorry. for. It's not yonic. Let's, let's put it this Everybody way. Everybody needs a melon for a pillow. Never mind. Yeah. The... the, the, the... Like, I don't know how Freud accounts for breasts, essentially. <laughs> That's what I want to say about this. He tries to ignore them whenever possible. <laughs> Selects his patients based on them. Uh, yeah, so after casting, casting that wild assertion... Oh, uh, wild assertion appears. <laughs> wild assertion appears. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, what we don't have this week is feedback. Uh, not because you didn't listen to our appeal at the end of the last episode... Which uh, you did. You definitely did. Uh, or else. Well but uh, because uh, we right. managed to fragment the time stream into about a million pieces using our uh, ultraviolet tanning bed that Ben borrowed from one of his neighbours. <laughs> Actually, I, I assume that your village in Essex isn't very Essex, but... Uh, it has it has pockets of Essexicity. Okay, if you measure Essex like in level of tan from any human body colour, right? So you think about it, there's some people who have tan but they look like they might still be human and then you go along to the point where it just doesn't look human. Looks more like a weak extra in like an early Star Trek. Um, See, how Essex? Well, n not very in that case because you're conflating Essex, the county in the UK, with the only way is Essex, the abomination against humanity. Hey, uh, the stereotype had to come from somewhere. They're doing a Birmingham one next, so it's all going to come back my way, you know? Yes. I'm making the most of it while Essex is still the cultural zeitgeist for fake tan <laughs> and those other things. Awfulness. Uh, yeah, no, my village is not very Essex at all on that scale then. Because, um, yeah, it's just I'm just thinking about voices as well, because someone asked me to do a recording for their own personal use. Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. But then I thought, well... You know, at least she'll owe me something. Um, and she just. Also, why do I have to be naked? <laughs> yeah, it's an audio medium. Also, <laughs> by the way, I always podcast naked. Ugh, yeah. Like John Oliver at <laughs> national conventions. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we don't really have any feedback. That's sort of feedback. Someone asked me because she wants you to verify that I'm not going to cheat. Because she wants me to record the word about over and over again. And she okay. says that you're the only person who can verify that I'm not cheating and putting on a posh voice just for her. Okay, no, he isn't. He really does sound that ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah, she won't tell yeah, me. Yeah, you, you like voices, you wait till the outro. Anyway. Oh, uh, yes. Um, all so right. That's sort of feedback. If, if you include... In talking about feedback... Tim is asked to use his voice for salacious purposes, probably. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of Americans and Canadians like my voice. It's about the only thing I have going for me. <laughs> of course, I live in Britain, so... Hey, you've got a winning personality and good hair. Uh, you mean I'm like uh, Charlie Sheen, then? I, I wasn't aware that you had a crushing drug addiction, but you know, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. I just love me. Crushing, cr cr crushing drugs. I don't take them, I just go crush them in my hands. Tiger blood, man. <laughs> 
Uh, Essex right. Tiger. Uh. <laughs> yes, Essex Tiger blood is actually heroin. Colchester, uh, cheapest place in the country to get heroin. Wow. Um, I was born I, in Nottingham, which was somewhere. the gun crime capital, and then it's walked to Birmingham, where I grew up, so it's just <laughs> guns are my thing. Man, they were really trying to shoot you, weren't they? Yeah, and that's why I've escaped to Worcester, and there's no gun crime here. Yet. Or ethnic minorities. <laughs> Yet. Those two things are not correlated, and they are not causally linked. Yet. Okay, yeah, can we leave that last year out? <laughs> yeah, sure. Feel comfortable. Right, what have I done this week? Let's start it that way around. <laughs> uh, I, I ask that because there's no one else here to ask me that because I have been living alone this week. Uh, my parents have gone away dog-sitting. Um, by dog-sitting, I mean on holiday in a manor in Gloucestershire. On a dog? Um, well, where a dog lives, but its owners don't live at the present, so they're living there looking after the dog. I see. Anyway, the point I'm is sure that, that yeah, makes sense. This means that the tragedy of all tragedies occurs and I have to cook for myself. And if there's one thing I hate, like I don't mind pretty much any other domestic chore, but cooking I find just stresses me out a lot. Okay. But yesterday I did successfully make a very beefy meal. Ah, in that I got a double portion of beef meatballs and made a tomato and beef stock uh, sauce using a purifier, not a purifier, purea blender cool. thing. You know, the ones that you kind of plunge into things, the ones that I imagine would be really painful if someone like lowered onto you. Ah, right. Yes, I can. I can see that happening. Um, and uh, a lot of pasta. So it was just like, ah, I'm in so much, so much pain. Why did I do this when I have a known stomach disorder? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was quite silly. It was nice. It was so nice. Oh, and cheese as well, obviously. I, I was really chuffed with myself. I made like an inventive dish entirely of my own volition the other week. It was like... Um, sort of uh, sweet potato um, with chorizo and bacon and kind of all... I love the way you say it like I do, just to patronise me. Yeah. Uh, and... Oh, man, a Portuguese co-worker really was just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Sorry? Oh. Yeah, she taught me how to say it in Portuguese and then I forgot. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I did that and uh, was well chuffed. Um, so there it we go. I'm starting to get hungry. <laughs> I'm going to have takeout tonight. I'm just like Friday takeout. Yeah, same. Singapore rice. Extra same. Uh, anyway, yeah, cool. So that's what you did this week. Yeah, I wrote it down in my notes because my major of the week is going to be a post-rock band as living alone for thousands of miles. <laughs> Makes oh. sense. Uh, that would be a good belabored segue, which will now derail. Maybe we need, <laughs> yep. we need a sub new subcategory of derailed segue. Uh, yeah, you could do one of like a, a train coming off a track, just yeah. like, dun, dun, and something like that screams. Yeah, maybe I'll just use that. I um, was listening back to the show. Uh, some feedback from me to you yeah. is you said that you should get a badumch for the soundboard. Ah, a badumch. I'll write that down. Badum tish for soundboard. I was actually typing much faster than that, but you know. Um, <laughs> what, so, uh, hey Ben, yeah, what, what did you do this week? week? Uh, well Ben, I uh, I didn't do much this week other than be ill, which as I previously mentioned. Um, so I'm going to say something that I did amnesia. <laughs> in the last hour uh, between <laughs> finishing the recording of the first podcast and this podcast, which is still technically this week. Yeah, it enters into the next week, I guess. So you will recall, uh, dear listeners, from the previous podcast, possibly, that... Uh, we suggested that there should be some kind of internationally accepted s standard for judging the uh, quality of 
uh, authorial names on papers. And whilst Tim was blathering on, I just I came up with a list of seven categories. Uh, you had a lot of time whilst I was blathering on. That I did. Uh, to, a list of seven categories uh, uh, through which to judge um, the uh, the authors. Although I think there may be some redundancy, but I'll, I'll write down the ones that I thought of in the order that I thought of them, and we can go ma- depth through and maybe pare them down a bit. So um, the first one I uh, I came up with is impact, which I think is perhaps a little too general. Um, so, uh, but so maybe we need to lose that one. Uh, the second one is pun potential, which is obviously very, yes, important. very important. Uh, one that you suggested was exoticism. Uh, yeah, I well, mean, I'm otherizing foreign names essentially. Yeah, well, that's fine. Why not? Everyone else does. Not to be confused with eroticism or uh, uh, extroversion or neuroticism, <laughs> um, but it does sound suitably psychological for that reason. The uh, next one is badassery, which is obviously very important for people like Hellhammer. Yep. Um, yeah, which could also be rendered as likelihood to be Viking epithet. Yes. Uh, brackets. You know, uh, Rick Magnuson, Hellhammer. Epithet. Uh, suitability. Uh, I've decided on another one that I've just thought of, uh, which should be uh, nominative determinism. Oh, yeah. Uh, for, you know, the brains and the sciences out there. Uh, team score is quite an important one. That's for when the individual names maybe aren't that great, but when they combine together in a highly appropriate way. Yeah, like the one we had the other week where it was Fiesta, Eagleman and Stetson. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, so that would be a high team score. Uh, impenetrable pronunciation um, is quite important. Mahi. Mahi. Although, to be honest, for me, that's any name that isn't demonstrably English, but never mind. Uh, and finally, gratuitous use of consonants. <laughs> Again, chicks and mahi. Yeah, I was wo- I was wondering whether those two Polition. might be like overlapping and basically combined into one Polishness score. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think that's actually probably better. Polishness. Maybe we can have sub classes if necessary. Polishness um, for impenetrable pronunciation and gratuitous use of consonants and. Uh, yeah, that should give an overall impact score, I think, would probably be the, the thing to have at the end there. Overall impact. So there we go. Pun potential, exoticism, badassery, brackets, Viking epithet, suitability, nominative determinism, Polishness, team score, and overall impact. That's pretty good. So uh, let's have a look, shall we? Shall we try some out? Yeah, let's try some out on some of the ones that have come up in this particular pair of episodes yeah so i mean the one last week i liked your uh slepian vice book rule and ambady i think that's got a good that's got a lyrical flow to it yeah um, uh yeah i am i'm i'm just gonna say rule was there again kind of it's kind of the coolness factor isn't it the badassery almost yeah yeah there's i mean i think the the the, the kind of flowing way that they all go together Slepian, Weissbach, Rule and Ambadi gives good team score like you know that's that's yeah. pretty good maybe maybe a 7 for the team score uh, okay um, out of 10 I guess no it should be uh, yeah we'll, we'll do them on a 7 point scale so they can have a 6 for that okay uh, exoticism uh, 
it's it's. A, I mean, Slepian. I don't know anyone called Slepian. I don't know anyone called Weissbuch. I don't know true. anyone called Ambardi. I mean, Weissbuch is German, but that's still they somewhat are, alien. They are exotic. They're not. They're not consummately exotic, but they are. No, but I think you know. I'm saying five. Definitely, yeah, a five, a solid five. Um, badassery, not so much badass. I don't think. No. Um, I don't see much pun potential apart from on rule. No, and even then, I mean, it's it's going to be fairly. Uh, I was thinking something with slapping and slapping or something, but uh, yeah. I was when I look at Slepian, I see Sleepnia. Yeah. Um, okay. Maybe I'm just primed Viking, you know. Yeah, perhaps. I'm talking to you, Vikings are primed. Well, we'll give them. We'll give them. We we'll, won't give. We'll give them a two for pun potential. Okay. There is stuff in there, but it is pretty forced. Badassery. Uh, Your expertise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, badassery. Yeah. I mean, German always gives gives points in that category. Just you know. It definitely helps. So maybe a three. You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Ambardi, you could render as just Ambad. Ambad. That is true. I think that definitely pushes it up from a two to a three. Uh, or Ambadi, which would, could be the next name of the bad guy in Expendables Three. You know, after Villain. <laughs> Expendables Two. Yeah, I can see that working. Um, nominative determinism, obviously, pretty pretty standard zero there. There's nothing that I can tell, because I mean it could have worked for rule, except it's not doesn't make rulers or anything. So um, you know, yeah, isn't king of the world? Anti-nominative, yeah, exactly. Um, Polishness score very low, very low. Yeah, Polishness yep. score. Because, um, you know, I'm looking at, well, Slepian looks um, Armenian to me, because anything ending in Ian makes me think Armenian, Facebook German, mm. rule, probably English, and body, ambiguous. I'm thinking for, we're looking at an overall impact of four or five, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not, it's bad. not bad. It's not it's bad. Not bad. Okay. Time. That's taken an awful lot of time. I think we should just move on. I think so. Maybe one of these a week, but, you know. Okay, yeah. Or when new it... segment. What is it with you and new segments? Why are my new segments never allowed? <laughs> because they're weird. Uh, anyway, what we should actually do is when a good set of authors come up, we should apply the rules and see see what we've got. We've got kind of a starting point now. We've got a, a, a good four. An example that scores four as kind of our, our anchor point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good. A nice median. Yeah. Um, we'll get the Ouija board later. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, that's what I've done this week. What's, okay, then. What's your media of the week, Tim? Okay, so my media of the week is the first new post-rock band that I've listened to in a while. Oh. Um, basically because I have too much music in the world. You know, I have a huge Spotify and Groove Shark and um, XFM. I have an iPod with like 8,000 songs on. So seeking out new music has not really been a priority uh for me um but someone sent me on last fm i think uh the band there's a light um and they've got a mini album on bandcamp and also literally today i realized that bandcamp.com probably a reference to american pie ah yeah probably probably um that's a generation isn't it i I went to the homepage and there was a naked picture of alison hannigan at least although they may have been hacked Mm. Sorry, what's uh, the I'm guessing that's not something that's going in the show notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's for personal use. Um, cool. It is a, it is a strange thing about I was just gonna, uh, yeah. post-rock. Is It's quite a high investment kind of genre, um, I find. Although it is quite good for sort of background listening, I guess. But in terms of seeking new music out, to de- determining whether you really like a post-rock band or whether they're just kind of a bit meh, um, yeah. 
is takes quite a lot of kind of uh, effort effortful hunting. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, there's a light definitely for it. They are one of these bands that use kind of speeches uh, in their music. So they've got one from uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin from The Dictator, his Jewish character in that, doing this amazing speech, and oh, cool. one from Canada, Canada, Kennedy. <laughs> I can't do a good, you know, impression of Kennedy or Quimby um, uh, about choose to go to the moon. Uh, obviously, timely for the most recent few weeks. Um, and they're very, so it's very similar in that to kind of Kovlo, Maybe She Will, some bits of Godspeed, although not as dark. I think Kovlo is what it reminds me of the most, and I love Kovlo. Um, I mean, Kovlo, um, one of their album titles is I'm So Happy on This Boat. <laughs> it's not like, it's not a joke. It's not a Lonely Island kind of thing going on. It's just, you know... Um, he's on a boat and he's happy and he yeah. wants to sing about it very very slowly over well yeah i don't think there is any like actual vocals there's just like sound samples so yeah uh i'll put their link in the show note listen to them if you like post-rock uh, and if you don't try them out it might be your gateway drug post-rock it, what was the thing about post-rock it's- uh it's uh longer some it's like longer better and infinitely more satisfying <laughs> in other words i want to post rock your world um yeah my media of the week uh is <laughs> yeah quick quick weird and strange so um my media of the week is a comedian a stand-up comedian uh or comedian possibly um Ooh, should initially nice. pique your interest all, all women hate comedian as a word by I, the way i'm sure so. um a comedian then um called andrew o'neill he is. Uh, I wonder if he's actually got a, a like a self description. Uh, he is a hmm, about. Let's see what he says. Uh, he. I am a stand up comedian, a metalhead, an amateur occultist, and a musician. He is also a transvestite. Um, I guess that's what the pictures for. That's what the pictures for. He is also very very good. Um, he's been on the Stuart Lee comedy vehicle TV thingy. Um, there's, uh, on YouTube, there's, uh, kind of like a, basically a whole gig of his, which is very much worth a look if you like him from the first few bits. Um, he does a lot of material relating to, uh, the occult and sort of, um, Alistair Crowley type of magic stuff, but there's all, he's also an atheist and very sort of scientifically minded. And it's interesting to hear his kind of meshing of those two things. He does a lot of kind of surreal humor that could be from like Noel Fielding if he, Noel Fielding was funny. Um, Ooh. Oh, yeah. I, I, what do you think of the Mighty Boosh? I really don't mind Noel Fielding. I like Noel Fielding. Okay. Because um, I was going to say, would you be of the opinion that Julian Barrett is the funny one? Because you notice when they reform the Mighty Boosh for the uh, luxury comedy without Julian Barrett in, it's just not any good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's never split up, Ben. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, uh, Andrew O'Neill, well, well, well worth a look. Um, he does also does a bit which I've been long waiting for a comedian to do, which is to uh, delineate the various subgenres of metal, which uh, is fantastic. It wasn't real. The joke of it was simply that he was in quite some detail delineating the subgenres of metal. There wasn't very much more humor in it than that, which was frankly all that I was looking for. Um, and yeah, uh, in addition, he is also in a steampunk band. Um, oh, yes. Uh, which, the name of which, the men who will... Yeah, they, they're called the men who will not be blamed for nothing. Um, and it's based on the idea that the music associated with the steampunk movement is kind of... There's a lot of sort of goth, ambient, folk stuff 
but nothing that's very demonstrably punk, which okay. is kind of odd for a movement called steampunk, but it's true. And him, his, uh, and, I, I mean, linguistically, I don't think that's demanded, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And so him and a bunch of uh, guys got together and they formed the member who will not be blamed. For nothing, of course, guys who are a steampunk band um, in the, you know, Sex Pistols classic meaning of the word. And they're, they're quite good. If you, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that kind of purely anarchic attitude. You mean tuneless. Yeah, basically. I do mean the kind of amelodic punk music. Yeah. Um, but they are their lyrics are pretty funny. They have a song that I particularly like called St- Mr. Stevenson, which is about the four different Stevensons of the Victorian age and how right. to tell the difference between them. Um, they have some one called A Traditional Victorian Gentleman's Boasting Song. Uh, a song about goggles, how they love women in goggles. Uh, one that does sound really good. Purely about uh, called Brunel, uh, about uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel or Kingdom Isambard Brunel. No, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Um, what is the name of their album? I remember that being quite brilliant. Oh, uh, they've got a couple of them actually. Let me find the wiki. But it's like, and it would seem to be. The oh reason- yeah, I linked it. It's. Um, a definite contender for the longest uh, possible album name uh, will not be for nothing. Let's see. Uh, their albums are in 2010. Now that's what I call Steampunk Volume One. Uh, <laughs> a very steampunk Christmas EP. Uh, Anachrony in the UK, live in London. Uh, free spirit and this may be the reason why the men that will not be blamed for nothing cannot be killed by conventional weapons which is an awesome album title yep Uh, apparently they uh, face legal action for uh, an EMI trademark infringement claim for the now that's what I call steampunk Oh, uh, I, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because anyone who has any copyright is just kind of by nature evil. However, but... they did change then change the album title to the steampunk album that cannot be named for legal reasons. <laughs> oh, that's good. Which is based off a joke from uh, Andrew Neil's stand-up set where he uh, does these very, very strange little bits of poetry, which all follow the same format and are based on jokes uh, in naming things. And one of them is a list of names for possible children. And one of the names that he suggests is the child that which the child that cannot be named for legal reasons. As <laughs> That's quite good. Child, which is quite good. Uh, oh yeah. Um, so my brother was involved in a, a crime, as I may have mentioned previously, when we talked about our kind of crime and witnessing episode. Um, whenever he gets letters about the case, it always says the name of the guy who actually was above eighteen when he did it, and then it says and some youth defendants. <laughs> it's just like because they can't be named it's like but he knows their names you know? <laughs> it's stupid uh anyway uh yeah we should probably uh do some psychology now let's do it so uh, actually there's a very direct uh link from that into the next study which i'm going to talk about tim you were talking about gender and gender identity and how that relates to the physical properties of balls. And I'm going to talk about fish. I'm not sure. Oh, boys. Is it boys? No, there wasn't one. But anyway. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm calling boys. You're calling they're boys. They're balls that are male in a way because they're called boys. <laughs> one of two. Never mind. Um, <laughs> stu- yes. Yeah, so this is a study 
uh, by Spike Lee. Who is, really? Yeah, literally by Spike Lee. Uh, the Spike Lee? That I cannot say, but it is by Spike Lee. I mean, there can't be that many Spike Lees. It's Spike Lee and Norbert Schwartz. Um, is this like that time that Natalie Portman did a really boring psychological experiment that we're never going to cover on the show because it's really boring? It's really boring, yeah. Um, yes, but possibly. Well, who knows? Um, anyway, the study is called Bidirectionality, Mediation and Moderation, Yay! of Metaphorical Effects. The yay is not part of the title. The embodiment of social suspicion and fishy smells. Neither is the bit where I say the yay is not part of the title. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's going to go on. That's like meta forever. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't get caught in the, in the spiral. Um, so, it's commonly assumed that metaphorical embodiment is unidirectional. Uh, so, changing... Some uh, changing the dimensions of a concrete concept can affect the abstract concept, but not the reverse. For example, changing your physical temperature can influence your interpersonal affection, but being more affectionate doesn't make you warmer. This is the assumption. It is patently untrue uh, because studies have shown, for example, that being socially excluded increases our desire for warm beverages and also makes us estimate temperatures as being cooler. This is by Williams and Barge in 2008. Uh, Experiencing physical warmth promotes interpersonal warmth is the title. Uh, published in Science, fairly unequivocal. Um, so is that why English people have cups of tea? Quite possibly. Because is that why you might ask someone out for coffee? Quite possibly. You okay. read the paper. Uh, I yeah, haven't. I suppose I should. <laughs> so, yeah, there's plenty of evidence to show bidirectionality of embodied cognition in lots of different situations. The problem is that it tends to be via a comparison of separate studies showing opposite direction effects relating to the same thing. So there is a study that shows that changing your temperature in, uh, alters your interpersonal affection, uh, which is that Barge study, but then there's a subsequent paper showing that if you um, are socially excluded, that increases your desire for warm beverages or whatever. Um, okay. And you kind of have to do it by inference by looking at multiple studies. Um so the authors of this paper, Spike Lee and his friend Norbert Schwartz, uh, wanted to try and investigate bidirectional embodiment in a single study. And the concepts they wanted to link were social suspicion and fishy smells, which, as I previously mentioned, are concepts that are linked across at least 18 languages. Okay. Um, they were interested whether the fishy suspicion metaphor, or fish suspicion, as it shall henceforth be known, uh, was A, bidirectional, obviously, uh, B, mediated by its accessibility to the person in the situation, C, moderated by its applicability to the situation, and D, able to influence uh, perceptual sensitivity. That is, actually it's kind of tuning your perceptual systems rather than some more high-level cognitive process. This is kind of relating to what we were talking about a while back in terms of men and women being different in terms of their sense of smell. Okay. And the sensitization rather than changing the high level cognitive appreciation of a particular smell, that kind of thing. Okay. Can I ask a question that is uh, tangential to what you were just saying, but occurred to me earlier and I didn't want to interrupt you? Yeah. Does it say what the languages are? Yes. Uh, let me find them just a sec. Because uh, I just want to throw out a theory. None of those languages will be Scandinavian languages. <laughs> That is an interesting theory. Let me find it. An interesting and racist theory. Yeah, yeah, very. Um, where's the fish? Ah, here we go. 
Uh, it doesn't list them all, but it does include Arabic, Bulgarian, Chinese to French, which apparently is a continuum, German, and Spanish. Interesting. Uh, so, maybe, maybe. Hmm. Um, just saying. Just, well, I'm just Hashtag saying. Just saying. Which means it's translated as, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure I've covered that before, but yes, when you say, I'm just saying, what you should say is, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, A, B, C, and D, blah, 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 blah. So they did the whole shaboozle of studies. Um, uh, the most interesting which are studies one, two, and three, uh, but I will cover the rest. So studies one and two, they gave participants various economic games. One was like a trust-based exchange game and the other was a public goods game uh, under various conditions of incidental fishy smells. Um in the trust game, so people had to people had five dollars, and they could give some of them to a another player who was actually a confederate. Um, the amount would then that they gave would be quadrupled, and then the other player would be would have the opportunity to give some of it back or all of it if they wanted to. Um, thus, if the participant trusted their partner more, they'd invest more, trusting that they'd get it back, and vice versa. Okay, yeah. In the- As usual, the optimal solution is to be a nice person. I imagine. No idea. Don't care. Um, In the public goods game, uh, there were two participants and they could each invest money in a collective pool, which would then be um, kind of, uh, I think it would be multiplied by 1.8 times for some reason. Of course. Uh, Why why not make it simple, you know? Yeah. And then it would be evenly distributed back to all participants, regardless of how much they'd each individually invested. So therefore, it was important for them to trust the other participant to invest a lot. if they trusted them to invest a lot, then they would also invest more. Um, so there were, in addition to this, there were three smell conditions. There was either no smell, uh, fish oil in the area in which they were taking part, or fart spray, um, which immediately... <laughs> yes, correct. That is funny. Uh, <laughs> Where do you buy that? A joke shop. I suppose so. Obviously. Um, when, uh, when was the last time you actually saw a joke shop? <laughs> Well, in, like, disturbing horror movies or, like, Victorian novels. Sure. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure you can get some joke stuff in somewhere like Celebration. Yeah, like party shops, that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Jokes. Shops for the providing of jocularity. Do you reckon that's how this whole study started? It was some professor in the local (laughs) costume and party store going... Slash fishmongers. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, fart spray. I'm sure there's a way I can use that for science. I got all these raw pilchards from earlier. I wouldn't combine <laughs> the two. Uh, yeah. So the results were as expected. There was significantly less investment in the games in the fishy smell condition compared to the other two. Fairly so straightforward. Yeah, proving that it's not just an unpleasant smell. Yeah, not just unpleasant, specifically fishy. Uh, the third study was titled Socially Induced Suspicion. Uh, so this is the bidirectionality thing. They are reversing the process. Um... In this task, participants had to smell five different test tubes containing various fragrances and note down the smells that they thought of. And then there was a suspicion manipulation. So, I quite like this one. Half the participants just got on with it. They were in the control condition. But for the other half, the experimenter would add an additional line to their instructions. After he'd explained, you know, smell these five test tubes and write down what smells you can think they are. He said, obviously, it's a very simple task. And, you know, there's, there's nothing we're trying to hide here. 
The experimenter then, and I'm quoting here, the experimenter then suddenly noticed a document underneath the participant's response sheet, hastily took it away, put it in her bag, came back, smiled awkwardly and said, uh, sorry, it shouldn't have been there, but uh, <clears throat> uh, anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. Oh, it's all very simple. There's nothing we're trying to hide or anything. <laughs> Any questions? OK, good, good. You can get started whenever you're ready. Close That's quote. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Just brilliant. Wonderful. Simple, effective, amazing. Um, uh, now, there are several versions of the task where they were using different, particular different scents or different orderings of smells to counter for things like pleasantness or recency and cognitive load was another thing they looked at. Um, but in all cases, the fish oil was more likely to be correctly labelled as such uh, when there was the suspicion manipulation. So there we go. There's your bidirectionality. Wow. Um, one thing about that bidirectionality, I mean, it is nice that they're doing it within the same context of an experiment, but technically those are two separate experiments. Um, yes, I suppose be, so. I, I was wondering whether it would be possible to actually do something where you have, you know, um, where you kind of include both manipulations of trust and fishy smells and kind of you're kind of pushing things backwards and forwards. Yeah, right. So if you play the game, you've got the confederate and you say, OK, we're going to play the game twice. And so the first time the confederate screws you. Right. And then yeah. you say, uh, oh, um, funny. We think we've just had, you know, some smells going on at the room. Or you just do a smell test, I suppose. Yeah. Um, what do you think that smell is? Mm. And so the person's going to be suspicious in the context of the actual game that they've been playing. Yeah. But, I mean, the stats to work that out afterwards could be so different. Yeah, it's kind of messy. But, you know, possible. Um, so those are the two coolest ones. They did a bunch of others. So they did things like uh, priming suspicion-related thoughts also activates fish-related thoughts. Uh, which is That's weird. Like, that takes it a bit too far, I think. Because something smells fishy. That's the metaphor. But I don't say, to, so say about someone, they are a fish. <laughs> It's to do with the smell, right? Yeah, you would. You call so. someone a rat, but you don't say, "Oh, something smells ratty," and so you don't that say one, you are a fish. The uh, it was involving like unscrambling sentences. Um, Easier than eggs. So the f- that is true. <sighs> right. So uh, there were four or five words, and they formed a grammatical phrase. Um, and when they were priming suspicion, four of the sentences contained suspicion words like distrust or shady or suspicious. Um, But not fishy, because that would be too far. Then the second study was a 20-item word fragment completion task in which there were 10 fish-related embedded items, like fish, fin, and tuna. So, yeah, I mean, it is is literally just fish concepts. It's not even fishy smell concepts. Um, So that is... I mean, from what we know about computational language, that does make some sort of sense. You can't activate fishy without activating fish at least a bit. Yeah. Enough to prime it. But that... So, I mean, that's kind of cool. Um, So there was that. Priming suspicion thoughts activates fish thoughts. Priming fish thoughts improves ability to correctly label fish smells. That's, I guess, fair enough. Um, And finally, the study three was... um, Sorry, study seven, I think it was, was wow, kind of uh, looking at this, the idea of sensitivity rather than just improving accuracy. They actually sort of changed the dosage of the smells involved. And it moved the threshold? Yeah, threshold change. Excellent. Which is very well done. Lovely. In terms of like good methodology. Yeah, no, wonderful, wonderful study design. Cool idea, kind of simple concept, well executed. So uh, good work, Spike Lee. Uh, yeah, I've looked up Spike Lee. Uh, 
his full name is uh, Spike Brackets Wing Sing Lee. Ah. Uh, he is uh, East Asian. I'll put his picture in the show notes next to a picture of the film director Spike Lee. Okay. Um, because, you know, contrast. There will be some. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, shall I talk about what my uh, notes entitle Embodied Babies? Well, I guess. Okay. Why not? So, yeah, this is about embodied intelligence, embodied cognition, and it's about the less kind of metaphorical side, the bit that Ben was talking about in the intro, about how reasoning and intelligent... Reasoning and intelligence cannot function in a purely abstract sense, but must be grounded in the physical world. And also, along with this, we can accept that babies don't start out fully intelligent, except in that film, you know, um, what's it called? It's a baby, it's a genius, uh, alien, that's it. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'd like to take a break here to read a list that my dad and I found when searching for insurance documents in a folder literally on top of our filing cabinet, you know, where you'd expect to find the most recent finances and insurance and letters from the gas man. In this folder is a list of offers that accompanied my father's alumni card, which arrived a couple of years ago, a braille alphabet, probably also a couple of years old, a to-do list written by my mother six weeks before my birth, a list of potential <laughs> girls' names for me and my brothers, which establishes the well-known parallel of Catherine for me, but also Laura for my brother Peter and Helen for my brother Chris, which I didn't know. Uh, those aren't all too bad, but the list does also include Deborah, Francis, Jacqueline and Nadine, all names I count myself somewhat fortunate not to have. Although then again, I am called yes. Timothy, so you know. <laughs> Swings around yeah. about, eh? Um, uh, anyway, the relevant, yes, there is a relevant part of this folder, is Peter's vocabulary <laughs> aged 13 and a half months. And I'll give you the full list. The full list wow. is Mummy, Daddy, Tim, Big, Ball, Teddy, More, Nana, brackets, Ba, Woof, brackets, Foof, Bar, Roar, Moo, Meow, and the final entry on the list, the one that made me so excited about the ridiculousness of this list and that provides a brilliant belaboured segue, Fish Noise. Now I know what a fish noise is, but the idea that it's on a vocab list and written down as fish noise. And also that this vocab list... You don't know that it's a fish noise. Maybe he knows the words fish noise. (laughs) It seems unlikely. Data, data, fish noise. (laughs) A vocab list that is on the very top folder on the top of the filing cabinet. What? So I've had a weird week anyway. Anyway, that's that. Yeah. Infant intelligence being shown, the development of infant I language. You should co- I think you should call your firstborn child fish yeah, noise. Yeah, I think that I'm not going fish to noise Although, like, more and more names are getting ruined, right? So my brother Peter was pretty angry that uh, you can't actually... Now we, in our family, can't have a child called Bella, because obviously Bella Swan, Twilight. Elizabeth okay. is off the table, because Elizabeth Swan, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and... I'm really worried black. that 50 can't, states... Can't call any children black. <laughs> it should be obvious, but it's not. Uh, that's a quote from Tommy probably, probably Natalie as well. Probably wouldn't work. Natalie Swan. Well, it's just too many associations. Anyway, uh, oh yeah, true. Hadn't thought of that. Uh, Myla Swan, probably a bit too far as well, but who's going to call... No, but yeah, I'm really so, worried that 50 yeah. Shades of Grey is going to ruin... Uh, a protagonist's called Grey, which as anyone who's read my novel, the two people who have, will know kind of important to me and two girls called anastasia because anastasia was definitely on my like names list that will never make it past an actual physical woman but does that really matter you know because it's all theoretical at the present anyway wow the oc ruined seth 50 shades of gray is ruining anastasia are you sure rogan oh yeah yeah Uh, emmanuel the film series that started before i was born ruined emmanuel 
basically, I like names that are really long that can be shortened to much easier ones. So Emmanuel, you can call her Emma. Anastasia, you can call her Anna. Anyway, getting oh, pretty distracted here. Stacey. Uh, sorry, carry on. So yeah, the two have to go together. Development of intelligence and development of embodied cognition. And Smith and Gasser, so it's back to the fart spray, uh, wants to tackle that. <laughs> uh, better than the first joke I came up with, let me assure you. Um, Babies ex- the baby's experience of the world is profoundly multimodal. Oh, sorry, this is onto their lessons. They gave you six lessons for developing intelligence with a view to uh, doing it um, artificially. So, Presumably the first two being learn to read and gain access to online jobs. Well, <laughs> no, uh, because it's starting from a kind of different perspective. So one, baby's experience of the world is profoundly multimodal. We propose that multiple overlapping and time-locked sensory systems enable the developing system to educate itself without defined external tasks or teachers just by perceiving and acting in the world. Man, that makes it sound really creepy, doesn't it? Yep. It's, it's learned to learn. Yep. It's just watching us Waiting learning. to go on YouTube. One day, and in a very real sense, this is true, they will rise up and take over. <laughs> yeah, by being the next generation and once we're retired. Uh, two... Babies, the new robots. <laughs> yep. Uh, two, babies develop incrementally and they are not smart at the start. We propose that their initial prematurity and the particular path they take to development are crucial to their eventual outpacing of the world's smartest AI programs. Three, babies live in a physical world full of rich regularities that organise perception, action and ultimately thought. Don't worry, I'm rattling through these because I'm going to explain them better later. Um the intelligence of babies resides not just inside themselves, as Descartes might think, brackets, uh, but is distributed across their interactions and experiences in the physical world. The physical Skynet. The physical world serves to bootstrap higher mental functions. Four, babies explore. They move and act in highly variable and playful ways that are not goal orientated and seemingly random. Brackets just like me. Brackets. Uh, in doing so, they discover new problems and new solutions. Exploration makes intelligence open-ended and inventive. Five, babies act and learn in a social world in which more mature partners guide learning and add supporting structures to that learning. And six, babies learn a language, a shared communicative system that is symbolic, and this changes everything, enabling children to form even higher level and more abstract distinctions. So yeah, all of this comes from a computational perspective. Gasser, far from being a chemical weapons expert, is in fact a computer scientist. And obviously, a lot of work with computer learning happens in a non-physical environment. And as much as there are babies in the Matrix, if you remember that bit from the Matrix, uh, you know, they, they, they do it in the physical world. Um, I should point out at this stage that I'm completely and utterly distracted looking for <laughs> images of baby romper suits that make them look like robots. I have, however, just found that one that makes it look like a tiny Wookiee. Okay, well, if you can, you know, send the link to buy that for me, and I'll get ready for my <laughs> first child who is admittedly running out of names to be called, but at least, at least they'll have a baby Wookiee suit. Uh, I'll carry on with some psychology. You probably it's alright, you don't have to listen to this bit, it's just me being excited and quoting a lot. Um, Oh my god, the number of baby dinosaur outfits. Rawr. Rawr, indeed. Uh, careful observers of infants have long n- noted that they spend literally hours watching their own actions, holding their hands in front of their faces, watching as they turn them back and forth, and some months later, intently watching as they squeeze and release a cloth. This second characteristic of multimodality is what Edelman calls re-entry, the explicit interrelating of multiple simultaneous representations across modality. For example, when a person experiences an apple, 
and immediately characterizes it as such. The experience is visual, but it also invokes the smell of the apple, its taste, its feel, its heft, and a constellation of sensations and movements associated with various actions on the apple. Importantly, these multimodal experiences are time-locked and correlated. Now, can you see what this has to do with embodied cognition? Don't worry, I'm not stuck. What this reveals is that I'm still on baby Im- pictures. Yeah, honestly. embodied cognition <laughs> is basically built into the system and humans would be rubbish without it. And the evocation of one feature by another is how we have global concepts and thus conceptual thought. But it comes out of the physical world or at least our own experiences. We t- talked a bit in the time episode, although not really enough, about the importance of rhythm. And if you want to kind of fool or teach a human, rhythm is what will do it. I mean, Ramachandran uses that with the false limbs. And at the basic level, neurons firing together in time and in phase with each other is what causes us to learn anything. And babies have to learn how to make sense of the way their senses fit together. For example, you put a toy in a box with eight and nine-month-year-olds, not in the box. You put a toy in the box in front of some eight-slash-nine-month-year-olds. Month-olds. Stupid. Years. Anyway. Take a a run at 0.75-year-olds. The box is either clear or opaque, and it has a... Hang on, is that 0.75-year-olds or 0.75-year-olds? I'm pretty sure that the latter, no, the former is a crime. Um, (laughs) The box is either clear or opaque, and it has a flap that opens up. The infants are better at retrieving the toy from the opaque box, because like unfortunate pigeons, they try to pass through the transparency. That is, unless you give them some transparent buckets first. Titsa et al, no laughing at the back, <laughs> gave, gave either transparent or opaque. <laughs> I wasn't even listening to the sentence. I was concentrating on baby pictures and that one penetrated through the barrier of inattention. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you've got to do as a teacher. Silly names. Like if you want to teach psychology. Occasionally throw in, t- occasionally throw in tits. Ah. Um, gave <laughs> yes. either transparent or opaque buckets to infants a month before testing them on the box task. Maybe you could check if there's a baby in a walrus suit. Um, totally. On and it. those who'd had chance to get to grips with the transparency, this interaction of solid to the touch but clear to vision... Oh my god, there is! <laughs> ...did the task well. So these infants... That's adorable! These infants... There's a dog one! <laughs> why don't you look for, like, uh, pugs wearing clothes if you want adorable. Right. These infants are learning a concept about glass they're learning about solid transparency that's going to feed into their symbolic understanding later and these sort of tasks can be shown in more subtle ways to do with reaction times in adults so multimodality is lesson one lesson two be incremental the senses come online and develop at different speeds you know as the series goes on more power ranges are added and the way they interact is affected by this. So the first senses to join together are hearing and vision, because babies from a very, very early stage, you're talking about 30 minutes after birth, um, attend visually to sound sources. And then as development goes on, touch gets involved as they reach things, and then proprioception as they crawl and so forth. And this impacts tasks like the A not B task. The A not B task is when you hide an object under one cup, get the infant to find it, and once they're used to that, you hide it under another cup, making very clear to show them where you've put it. You're not trying to pull a scam. At eight to ten months, these are infants who aren't moving themselves around yet. They go back to A, even though they've seen it put in B. Whereas in the 12-month-olds who are moving around themselves, they correctly get B. But if you turn eight to ten-month-year-olds into cyborgs, uh, that is, put them in walkers, that allow them to walk around without falling over because their balance or strength isn't that well developed. 
uh, they succeed at this task. So, you know, just in case you weren't neurotic enough about having kids, just me, as previously demonstrated. Um, man, I'm so scared about having kids. It's not even an issue in my life by, like, a matter of many years, and I'm terrified about it. <sighs> Means I'm going to be a great dad. Hooray! Huzzah. I'm pretending that's true. Um, you can potentially accelerate their development. Essentially, the reason this links to the test is because spatial memory and processing is really enhanced by moving around in space yourself. Proprioception helps intelligence. Um, so, I'll quote again. Now, here is the question that is critical for the creation of artificial life. Does the ordering of experiences matter in the final outcome? Could one just as well build an intelligent two-year-old by starting with a baby that listened, looked, reached and walked all together right from the beginning? Studies of comparative development make clear that the developmental ordering of sensory systems matters greatly. Different species show decidedly different orderings in the development of sensory systems, and these differences are related to their specific form of intelligence. The differential timing, or heterochronicity, is one way that evolution selects for different adaptive outcomes. See, especially 53, apparently. I'll have to put that in the show notes. Uh, experimental studies show that reorderings, changes in the normal development path, drastically alter developmental outcomes. For example, opening kittens' eyes early disrupts olfactory development and the subsequent coordination of vision and olfaction. Similarly, disrupting the developmental order of audition in vision and owls disrupts spatial location in both modalities. One of the ingredients in building biological intelligence... Owl. Sorry? I said I bet there's a baby in an owl. <laughs> yeah, if you want to find a kitten one and want to find an owl one... Um, uh, Incidentally, if you want to cheer up your life, whenever someone uses the phrase YOLO, imagine that it actually means you obviously like owls. I do obviously like owls. Yeah, well, there you go. YOLO. Oh, um, they're amazing. And I, I am sold on the idea of kids now, by the way. Is this going to be like a radical change in your life that I've accidentally achieved? It's not, not a radical change, but it's it's definite shift. Okay, interesting. I wonder if there's an owl costume for dogs. <laughs> Well, I wonder if there's a dog costume for owls. No one ever dresses up owls. <laughs> Come on, it's terrible. Um, so yeah, several attempts to model human learning have shown that neural networks sometimes fail to learn the task when the entire data set is presented all at once, but succeed when the data are presented incremental with an easy to difficult ordering. So there we go. Three. Oh, there we go. Be physical. Essentially, the humans use the world as an external hard drive. If we don't need to remember something because we can still see it, we do not bother remembering it. Uh, when it comes to the origins of embodied cognition, this is principally spatial. So if you have two containers and you look in one in front of a two-year-old and you say, oh, it looks like I've got a DAX in there. DAX being one of the favourite nonsense words of developmental psychologists, since every single one of them is a Trekkie, apart from Guy Sharif, who ironically is a member of the Borg. Uh, anyway... You then put the containers down and take them away. If that's not libelous, I don't know what is. <laughs> the Borg aren't real. You can't libel someone by saying that they're the Borg. Because I mean it literally and not metaphorically. But I also mean it fictionally in the sense that I don't mean it. If her reputation is ruined Good. by the idea that she's a Borg, then she can sue me. Which, to be honest, if she wants me to stop, she just has to look at me and I'll be scared. <laughs> she's a lovely person yes. and a great teacher but her eyes scare me and it's only me so it's clearly a me thing <laughs> it very much is we've been over this before yes okay sorry clearly, i'll stop repeating content uh, 
And I'll stop looking for baby Will you? probably. Uh, you know, like baby Borg? <laughs> baby Vulcan? <laughs> and when you then put the containers down and take them away revealing an object and you ask this kid hey what's that they say it's a dax which is really oh that's so and you cute. can't get an ai to do it but all they're really and uh, not you yeah, the I internet know. but yeah <laughs> all they're really doing is exploiting a spatial memory so if you have two objects on a table and you call the one on the right the right a dax and then you take the object away and you just look at the right and say well what was there they'll say a dax uh, and that's the origin of the time stuff that I mentioned briefly earlier. Spatial memory is a big thing for kind of conceptual thought. A quick quote in how it happens in adults. One experimental task that shows this is the Hollywood Squares experiments of Richardson and Spivey. People were presented at different times with four different videos, each from a distinct spatial location. Later, with no videos present, the subjects were asked about the content of those videos. Eye-tracking cameras recorded where people looked when answering these questions, and the results showed that they systematically looked in the direction where the relevant information had previously been presented. Okay, lesson four. Okay. Explore. It rhymes. The question they're asking here, how can a learner who does not know what there is to learn manage to learn anyway? Which is a big question in AI. Computational models usually have so many parameters set for them that it's nothing like mm. human learning. Yeah. So, I'll quote again. Sorry, I just love this article. In basic form, the developmental pattern is this. The presentation of an enticing toy is arousing and elicits all sorts of non-productive actions and very different individual actions in different babies. These actions are first quite literally all over the place, with no clear coherence in form or direction. But by acting, by movements that explore the whole range of the movement space, each baby in its own unique fashion sooner or later makes contact with the toy, banging into or brushing against it or swiping it. These moments of contact select some movements in this space, carving out patterns that are then repeated with increasing frequency. Over weeks the cycle repeats, arousal by the sight of some toy, action and occasional contact. Over cycles increasingly stable, more efficient and more effective forms of reaching emerge. What is remarkable in the developmental patterns of the children is that each found a solution and eventually converged to highly similar solutions by following individually different developmental pathways as they explored different movements in their uncontrolled actions initiated by the arousing sight of the toy. They each discovered initially different patterns and each had a different developmental task to solve. But no wonder we analogize so much. We're exploring in this metaphorical space. We're just throwing stuff out there until it becomes a solution. We come in contact with something and it feeds back. Young mammals, this is quoting again, including children, spend a lot of time in behavior with no apparent goal. They move, they jiggle, they run around, they bounce things and throw them and generally abuse them in ways that seem to mature minds to have no good use. However, this behavior, commonly called play, is essential to building inventive forms of intelligence that are open to new solutions. This is a gorgeous study. I mean, gorgeous is my new overword, overused word of the minute, but... The overword. Der Overwort. <laughs> Der Überwort. Sorry. Get actual German in there for once. Um, so yeah, lesson five. Be social. And remember, we're building a soulless machine intelligence here, guys. Um, <laughs> we've got a ton of... And it needs to have a heart. <laughs> it needs to have hands, at least. Uh, we've got a ton of time-locked stuff, thanks to Meltsov, with infants imitating adults. But, of course, adults imitate infants, too. Back to quoting. In the initial moments, as infants and mothers interact, 
infants' vocalizations and facial expressions become more active, broader, and diverse. Mature social partners do not just react conjugatively or conjugately to the infant's behavior. That's if you kick a mobile, it spins. That's conjugate movement. Um, they build on it and provide scaffolding to support it and to transform it into conventionally shared patterns. For example, very early infant behavior shows a natural rhythmic pattern of intense excitement alternating with patterns of relative calm. Caregivers are thus able to create a conversation-like exchange by weaving their own behavior around the child's natural activity patterns. Initially, it appears as if the caregiver alone is responsible for the structure of interaction, but babies' behaviours are both entrained by the mother's pattern and educated by the multimodal correspondences these interactions create. Incrementally and progressively, the babies become active contributors, affecting their mothers by their own reactions to her behaviour and keeping up their own end of the conversation. Mature social partners also provide multimodal support to help ground early language learning. When a parent introduces an object to a toddler and names it, the parent musters a whole array of sensory motor supports to bring the child's attention to the object and to bind that object to the word. I realise I'm not doing any jokes here, but I don't care. Words are objects. No, sounds. You're doing a very good David Attenborough voice. And super. It's working. Sounds that symbolise things that are not sound. So there, we're getting into metaphorical thinking at a really early stage. Now. Fish noise. <laughs> in one study, Yoshida and Smith observed both English-speaking and Japanese-speaking parents routinely couple action and sound when talking to young children. For example, one parent demonstrated a toy tape measure to their child, and when pulling the tape out, say, see, you pull it, elongating the word pull to match the stopping and the starting of the action of pulling. This same parent, when winding the tape back in, said turn it round and round and round and round and round and round and round, with each round coinciding with the start of a new cycle of turning, which shows they're clearly not dyspraxic. By tying action and sound, <laughs> parents ground language in the same multimodal learning processes that undergird all of cognition, and in so doing, they capture children's attention, rhythmically pulling it to the relevant linguistic and perceptual events and tightly binding those events together. And finally, lesson six, learn a language, previewed in the last lesson. So, first, language is an in-the-world regularity that is a shared communicative system. Its shared aspect means that it is very stable, continually constrained by the many local communicative acts of which it is composed. But also, second, language is special because it is a symbol system. At the level of individual words, the relation between events in the world and the linguistic forms that refer to them is mainly arbitrary. That is, there is no intrinsic similarity between the sound of most words and their reference. The form of the word dog gives us no hints about the kinds of things to which it refers, and nothing in the similarity of the words dig and dog conveys a similarity in meaning, at least in English. There was some suggestion that Slavic actually doesn't do this. And in fact, during the Dadaist era, the Dadaists all made up languages, made up of silly sounds, just random noises that resembled language, and they were doing it self-ironically. But there's a contrast to this that was invented by the Russian futurists called Zaum. And Zaum was an attempt to find the aboriginal language, a sort of pre-Babel Slavic and one that was structured by sound. From their manifesto, they say, we have begun to attach meaning to words according to their graphic and phonic characteristics. We think of vowels as space and time. Consonants are colour, sound and smell. Anyway, Zaum didn't really last. Other languages are principally symbolic. And why? 
we'll go back to the study, one might expect that a multimodal, grounded, sensory motor sort of learning would favour a more iconic, pantomime-like language in which symbols were similar to reference. But language is decidedly not like this. Moreover, the evidence suggests that although children readily learn mappings supported by multimodal iconicity, they fail if there is too much iconicity between the symbol and the signified. One intriguing demonstration of this comes from the research of Deloach, which is directed not to language learning, but to children's use of scale models. Deloach's experimental task is a hiding game when the children are two-year-olds. On each trial, a toy is hidden in a real life-sized room, say, under a couch. The child's task is to find the toy, and on every trial, the experimenter tells the child exactly where the toy is using a model of some kind. And this model might be a blueprint, a drawing of the room, a photograph, a simple scale model, a richly detailed and exact scale model, a life-size model. Although, what's the difference between life-size model and room? <laughs> Who knows? Here is the very robust but counterintuitive result. Young children fail in this task whenever the model is too similar to the real room. For example, they are much more likely to succeed when the solution is shown as a, in a picture than in a scale model, and much more likely to succeed when the scale model is a simplified version of the real room than an accurate representation. Why can't a symbol be too like-like, too much like the real world? One possibility is that children must learn what a symbol is. And to learn what a symbol is, there must be some properties that are common to the set of symbols. For example, the properties that distinguish pictures from real objects, or spoken words from other sounds. And at first, children powerfully apply mutual exclusivity. If I have a dax, and then I talk about a wug, they are not going to accept that a dax is also a wug. Anyway, for the first few months of language learning, kids don't really learn words. They can forget them even. But there comes a point when they can learn not only four to nine words a day, but generalise correctly to a whole category from one exposure. But what's happening before that is a lot of hidden language learning that sets up the later obvious language learning. So this list of words from my brother, he knows a lot more words than he is able to create at that point. And these structures for him to learn a whole ton of words and categorise from the words he has, you know, from ball to mean his ball to mean all balls or even all ball shaped objects is being built in silence there again teaching correlations explicitly can accelerate learning if i give my kid a ball and i say hey it's a ball it's the ball so on i can make them learn quicker if i got them a bunch of balls and like that ball 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 get it spherical thing ball a bit <laughs> warmer than that obviously <laughs> oh, I don't know. and the less orthogonal, i.e. the words mostly describing unique things, the system, the harder it is for symbolism and metaphor, or indeed anything second order like that, to emerge. So orthonogality is a difficult word to say. Orthogonalness yeah, allows us to not overload our memory with a single sentence. And strict grammar rules allow us to make sense, so back to the Chomsky, of the symbols in set patterns. It doesn't have to be innate, but it does have to be rigid. And obviously the link between language and thought is debated, but the processes are parallel at least, categorising objects, moving from the concrete to the symbolic and so forth. And so, and here's the final bit of this very long study, if you want to build machine intelligence you have to follow these lessons. Be multimodal, be incremental, be physical, be explorative, be social and be linguistic. And my excitement for this study, admittedly not as funny as it could be, is really what I hope this podcast is all about, getting excited about psychology. Wow. Good uh good finish. Yeah. Good finish. So farts bray, that's funny. 
it's it's funny because you can generalize from the idea of a fart into all the different types and then the idea that you can combine it with a spray etc you can put those symbols together and you're picturing something i'm picturing something that sprays a kind of green gas because that's something that is in cartoons even though it's not in reality see i i heard fart spray but i didn't know that they had a, a organized structure of religion go on Farts pray. Uh, 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 yeah, okay, fine. Um, yeah. Spinoza. Spinoza would be happy with that. Because he believed that the entire he? universe, he was the kind of guy who came up with pantheism, at least in the Western world. All the universe, okay. everything happening, is the mind of God. Isn't that where you worship, um, like, sauce buns and such? Uh, no, no. Ironically, I don't know. How, how do you do the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster? Is it considered sacrilege or worship to eat spaghetti? Oh no, it's part of, it's like ritual gorging on spaghetti is a major part of that. Yeah, but religion. you see how it could go both ways, right? I suppose it can, but you know, of, uh, you know, a communion thing, really, as a parallel. Also, it's made up and stupid, so, like, I don't think they, they're the kind of people to deny you anything. <laughs> I think Friday is the holy day, every Friday. Okay, so it's like yeah. the cult of Rebecca Black that's going to happen in the post-apocalypse. Except the spaghetti monster definitely came first and presumably considers Rebecca Black an abomination unto spaghetti. Oh, I think everyone considers her that. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um... So there we go. Uh, Fish and Children, I guess, would be the summary name for this week's stuff. Um... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Embodied Cognition is amazing uh it works with fish and suspicion or what did you call it fish suspicion fish suspicion fish suspicion and children <laughs> uh, yeah probably those, those sneaky sneaky fishy smelling children yes and it turns out it probably derives quite i think they make a, a strong argument for it deriving from kind of the, a very fundamental a, kind of aspect of our developmental process uh, which yeah. is rather cool yeah, I had no idea it was so important. Mm. I thought it was just a cool kind of phenomenon, side effect or something. But yeah. no, it's like a big deal. It turns out what, embodied cognition can make anything interesting, even developmental psychology. I like developmental uh, psychology. I <laughs> but never mind. Um, so there we go. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Uh, as with last week, uh, and as you may have been doing since last week, please do send us lots and lots and lots of delicious feedback, even if it is cursory throwaway or frivolous that's ex exactly the kind we like yeah. i don't, mean if you want don't to talk to don't be intimidated by the fact that we talk about psychology i can't imagine why you would be intimidated by us talking about psychology um but yeah you, just send yeah, us you can comment on the media a lot of our feedback is about the psychology you <laughs> can you could could i suppose we do get comments about the jokes usually saying i didn't laugh hard enough at some of your puns <laughs> which i find unlikely <laughs> um but uh yeah, um, basically, yeah, get in contact with us. If you want to write it in the comments of another podcast that I listen to or appear on, then I guess that's fine. But there are better ways. For example... Uh, you can email us at uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can Twitter at us, as Chris Addison says, uh, on uh, psych Team Psychomedia or Tetra Angel. Uh, you can always come and comment on the WordPress page, which will also have delicious and exciting show notes. Uh, yes, especially this week. Myriad of buttons to press and lots of pictures of babies. Yeah. Um, and, um, sorry, I got distracted by thinking about the millions and millions of babies. There are a lot of them. Uh, 
about an A4 page worth of books. <laughs> Hooray! I'll give you a quick preview of the titles. Babies, the new robots. Babies, the new dinosaurs. Babies, the new walruses. Babies, the new owls. Babies, the new borg. Dogs, the new walruses. Dogs, the new dinosaurs. Babies, the new dogs. One just for Tim. And also, this exists. <laughs> You see, I think I know what the last one is, but if you don't what I think the last one is, as the this just for Tim, I'm going to hate you forever. <laughs> um, uh, so that's think, something to look forward to. Uh, yeah. Um, and then there's the Facebook page for all of the random thoughts that occur to me about psychology in the show in between recording and show noting hmm. uh, each week. Uh, that's facebook.com slash psychomedia. Leave a comment on iTunes, rate us some stars on iTunes. That takes two seconds. And I don't know, it helps it makes us feel good yeah or something i mean if you do it enough it shares it with others on uh, itunes but you know gotta start somewhere gotta start somewhere uh and until next week goodbye i guess bye for now General Griscovicious, sir, welcome to the Terminator production facility. What we have to show you is the best artificial intelligence wardroid we have created. Young man, you whippersnappers are always showing me technology that I don't understand. So tell me, what's going on here? Uh, well, sir, we followed the Smith & Gasser approach to AI construction. It's a multimodal, social, linguistic, explorative, physical and incremental design. Ah, huh, Gasser. I knew a Gasser once back in Nam. Uh, sir, aren't you too young to have served in Vietnam? I didn't say it was in the war, did I, boy? Oh, sorry. So anyway, about the war droids. What's that? What's that, I smell? Is someone having a tuna mayo hoagie in here? Uh, no, sir. That's Give me some just of that. The... <laughs> I'm afraid it's uh, just the pervasive air of suspiciousness that surrounds all covert research facilities. Ah, I know about that. Well, show me this machine here, boy. Uh, yes, sir. Right away, sir. War droid, activate. Gaga. Gaga. Fish noise. Fish noise. Fish noise. Oh. Fish noise. Why, he's just like a babe in arms. Come here, little fella. Here sir, you go. Sir, it's too dangerous. Sir, get down. It'll oh, swipe sorry. you with its random movement. Just ah, go. no. It's, it's it took numb. my face and my delicious face. Avenge me, boy. Avenge me on that beautiful robot baby fish of yours. Ugh.